Oh, hey there. I'm Guy Branham, and welcome to Pop Rocket, a weekly show picking over the pop culture we all love to love. Uh, but this week, it's a bonus episode where we'll be picking over the pop culture panelists we all love to love uh, and trying to get winner to tell us some exclusive showbiz gossip about our clients. Um, we're going to do a bonus episode uh, that we promised during uh, Max Fun Drive. Um, and we thought since we've been doing this for half of a year and we've learned about each other kind of, but sort of don't know each other super well, it would be a good opportunity to, to get to know each other better. Uh, and with me here in the studio. Why so solemn right now? Yeah, like what is that? Yeah. Oh Who died? Was, yeah, I think this is a sensitivity voice. I was practicing. Is your Oprah? Is your Oprah voice? I was practicing NPR voice. <laughs> I was just practicing for when I need to leave you guys. And Max Fun Behind <laughs> take over one of their game wow. shows. Wow. Take over one of their game shows. Yeah, even in my dreams. Are you That's hosting the Family Feud like that? No, I'm. I'm. You know, uh, ask me another. Wait, or wait, 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 don't tell me. Guys, Some, coming for the spot. Something where Paula Poundstone and Moraka are, you know, providing the sass, and I need to make myself as. Look, my friend Ophira hosts one of those, and I love her, and she's super funny. So I'm not talking shit okay, about that. Okay, okay. All right. So, but we begin every episode, of course. Thank you for getting me back into my super expressive gay voice. That's just embarrassing. <laughs> I, I, I think you can switch back and forth. Let, it, let us see the real yeah. you. We should get Mellow Guy for just the bonus episode. Um, um, all right, but we start every episode with a pop culture question from somebody on the Max Fun Reddit. Uh, this week, it's from a Redditor named Jesse Thorne. Never heard of him. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, he wants to know, who's your favorite Muppet? Winner, who's your favorite Muppet? I chose Bert and Ernie. Because uh, Bert and Ernie just were, I just love their relationship and how they related to each other. And I, I identified with it because I have a sibling and I feel like we're the same. Uh, we have the same interaction. And then I also picked Fozzie because Fozzie was just like the punching bag, but always had like really great punchlines. I don't know. I just, I, I felt like Fozzie really owned his identity. I never really thought about it before, but Fozzie Bear really does telegraph that weird relationship between stand-up comedian and the yeah, audience. Yeah. Where, like, you understand that this, like, he's the lowest status person. Right. He's the person you respect least. Uh, that's super funny. <laughs> Margaret. <who's laughs> Why your... did I identify with that? I, didn't, I don't think I went that deep. <laughs> Margaret, who's your favorite um, Muppet? Well, when I was really little, I was really obsessed with Animal. Anytime he came on the screen, I just was, like, ecstatic and joyful. And I think it was because he just was pure movement mm-hmm. and, like, pure chaos and joy. There was so much, like, joy to him. And I still, like, when I go to a concert, I like watching a really animated drummer because that that is, like, the joy center oftentimes at a live show. And I think for me, Animal just, like, captured that kind of, like, rowdy, energetic love of music. Have you watched the Muppets do Bohemian Rhapsody? I yes, yes. And Animal is incredible, incredible, yes. and really gets to show and shine yes. his his stuff. Oliver, who's your favorite Muppet? I, my safe choice would be Kermit, just because you know it's Kermit. Like how you're not going to like a frog who's a reporter and does other stuff. And he was, oh, he, I he forgot always, that he was a reporter I did too. That's that's the Sesame Street. Muppet. Yeah, that's the Sesame Street Kermit, and then there's the Muppets Kermit, which is just. Constantly beleaguered, so I, maybe I just identified with. Wasn't he an investigator that. at one point too? <laughs> I, like private eye. Like, yeah, was he? I, I love that. that... Sound familiar? But maybe that was part of his re- re- reporter yeah. persona. Yeah. Given a theater producer as a main character, I didn't think about that. That it was the guy who had to get the show on. Right. But I think in terms of just 
the pure joy, I mean Beaker. Because he just meeps. That's all he does. He just meeps. Yeah. Like, how do you not love a character that meep? That's all he does. And yet you talk shit about Mbop. <laughs> um. <laughs> he is the Hanson brothers of the Muppets. The one, the one man Hanson. Oh, and I skipped in the copy, but Colin did make the point that this is a pure first date question to get to know about each other, which I enjoy a lot. Um, oh, really? Yes. I wouldn't. I would talk so bad about that date after that. Yeah. Then you asked me about Muppets. Muppets. Stop being mean to Colin. <laughs> I like it. Um, I, I love Colin. I personally will go with either Miss Piggy for some pretty obvious reasons. <laughs> she knew karate. She's a diva. She had beautiful hair. Yes. Issues with her weight, but she still felt beautiful. Love her. Got men to submit. And then mm-hmm. Statler and Powerful Waldorf. Yeah. Statler and Waldorf just conceptually. That like as a child I was being exposed to a show that had two men just live snarking at the entire time. Yes. <laughs> it like taught me so much. While still making fun of the whole like stuffy critic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was so great. Much thanks to Jesse Thorne for that. And also giving us a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks. All right, you guys. We'll be right back after this to find out a little bit more about each of the Pop Rocket team. Hi, I'm Allegra Ringo, a dog owner. And I am Renee Colvert, a dog wanter. And together, we're the hosts of Can I Pet Your Dog, a podcast for unapologetic dog lovers. So let's talk about this. What are you getting yourself into? What is this podcast about? Well, we have dog news, dog experts, and interviews with special guests about their dogs. We also talk about dogs that we met this week. Join us every Tuesday on MaximumFun.org for new episodes of Can I Pet Your Dog? And we're back. Welcome to Pop Rocket. I'm your host, Guy Branham. With me in the studio are... Winner Mitchell. Margaret Wappler. Oliver Wang. Um, so... We thought we would go around and have each of us uh, do uh, a little bit of uh, an interview operation with one of the others. Uh, Oliver, do you want to start us off? Yeah. I mean, when I first met Winter, this was – I can't believe it's been half a year now. Has it been that long, guys? Yeah, even yeah. a little bit more because we started recording in December. Almost we've, like November. We've grown together. Yeah, yeah. We've yeah. cried together. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, the first time I met Winter, you know, as a when when she was introduced to me as a social media strategist, I had just a gazillion questions. Let's start with something very basic, which is how did you get into that line of work? Okay, well, I feel like it really sort of hit when I left uh, my job at Us Weekly, and I wanted to leave Us Weekly because I only started working at the weeklies because obviously I I love entertainment. But I also there was no there wasn't any movement in the market for a job that I wanted. Which and you was, you were a journalist writer for them. Yes. Okay. Um, I was a West Coast film editor, so I there was it was so much fun. I loved working for Us Weekly. It mm. was one of the best jobs I ever had, mm. um, and it exposed me to even more of a network and sort of got me out there and got my name out there. Because overall, I mean, you know, look, I I could snuff out a story, but I felt like I was a really good uh, reporter. I had a, I have a nose for news. So once, but I got tired of it. It got tiring to always have a story and mm-hmm. always be on deadline and partying and partying got aggressive. <laughs> Parties all the it time. It was the worst. It was the worst. <laughs> and it would just be up all night, all this travel. But then the market opened up for um, social media, strategy, consulting, uh, talent, uh, partnerships, and uh, branded content. It just started, you know, these these sites started opening up and, and having money and 
publishers were hiring. So I got a job working at a company that I won't name because they get on my nerves. And um, <laughs> they were hiring for someone to do like talent partnerships. And I have all these relationships. They also wanted someone who had understood uh, online content writing, interacting, pulling, extracting the, the right type of content, pushing it out to the right platform. So I started working there. I got I was in charge of um, websites of uh, the Kardashians and Snooki and JWoww and Nene Leaks and I got a bunch of other stylists on and we built sites and I introduced a lot of these people to their platforms mm-hmm. or helped sustain their platforms. And then, you know, the company kind of fell apart and um, is falling apart. And I wanted to start my own company where I just worked with people that I felt like had innate curiosity about social media. So I can say unequivocally, like the Kardashians were like the best right. at it. Um, and then like somebody like, you know, Nicole Polizzi, who's snooky, she's amazing at it. And I wanted to work with more people like that because they were they're so high up on the social media structure scale. Like they're commanding millions of dollars. They've right. got a great platform. I want to help put people in that context up in that social construct as well. I think one of the things I'm always curious about is someone who has – I feel like I'm relatively social media proficient, but I feel like half the time I also don't know what I'm doing, and especially because you are hired as a strategist to guide people through this. What is sort of one of the common mistakes that you see people – especially let's say people who are already famous who want to be able to use social media as a way to, I don't know, enhance their brand or what have you. What's a common mistake that you typically see people doing? I think one of the biggest issues that I – seem to have to work through to help people sort of overcome is accessing their curiosity, but also letting them know that they don't know it all. Mm. Um, A lot of uh, my clients didn't grow up with this per se, and they sort of fell into it. And you can see as soon as I get um, access to their insights and their analytics, I can see like when they kind of joined and when it all started to explode. And usually the explosion is is right around uh, when they got a show or they got a movie or something controversial happened and they, you know, become increasingly popular. But one of the biggest mistakes is sort of not understanding, having curiosity and not understanding your audience. Mm. So expecting people to just take what you say as Bible mm-hmm. and not really sort of giving them anything entertaining to work with. This raises actually a really interesting – another question I've, I've want to know, which is that there has to be a fine line between you want to engage enough so that it's not purely one way uh, because then you're just really kind of broadcasting but you're not really you – know, again, you're not engaging with your audience. But on the flip side, I think one of the things I find fascinating – this is especially true about Twitter – is that it sort of flattens out the playing field hierarchically where some you know rando nobody feels like they can – you know, say something to someone who's far more powerful, famous, whatever than they are. And yet you can create a conversation here that would never exist in any other space except for that one. And so I think, you know, how do you find that fine line? Again, thinking about how you would counsel people, how do you find this fine line between you should engage with your audience, but also choose your conversations carefully, I guess? There's I've seen people who have 25 million followers and never talk to them. Mm. And that really hurts your engagement. And as something that's uh, becoming more prevalent, especially there's can line is happening right now over in France and advertisers are dealing with uh, where they put their dollars and they have done the whole I'm giving you 80,000, 90, 150, 200,000 dollars to tweet something and mm. not see those returns. Mm-hmm. The ROI is super low. It doesn't matter. You, It's better for you to create true engagement with your fan base and that means being thoughtful and growing slowly. Like I have like 3,200 fans on Twitter, maybe 3,190. Um, 
I, it's an audience that I've curated slowly. My profile was private for a really long time. I'm really thoughtful about the process. But if I'm with working with a client, I need to see about 5% per month to feel like you're actually going in the right direction. And you'll tell them that, that you just you need to step it up a little bit. you got to show something. I let them. Here's my philosophy. This is pretty much all I'll say because I don't want everybody to know my secrets. <laughs> um, for the first 90 days, I let you kind of tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I do the applicable things that I know that, you know, you get 5% over a month to month and you get growth. But I let you, I want to know what you think is the right thing to do because that's how I learn what your brand is. And then after three months, I bring in a, a report and I go, here's where we were amazing. Here's where we weren't that strong. Mm. More often than not, you became really amazing once you hired me because then I started having you I started having you do things that made you think about it thoughtful. It takes away like the fun in a sense. But you need to have certain measures in place so you can I always this is how I lead my life. I have to have certain measures in place to keep me constrained and contained and like focused. Mm-hmm. But then I have to have places where I can just go outside the box and be like a crazy person. So I basically provide you a foundation and then I let you go outside the box and, you know, sort of do what you do best. And that's where you'll see growth and that's where you see gains. It's more important now in 2015 and until the next stupid thing comes along. Um to be engaged with your audience and have reach than it is to just have like this crazy following. Taylor Swift is often given credit for being one of the you know most kind of best known people who uses social media effectively. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes. Um, there's not that many people that are good at it. I'd say Taylor, Selena, um, Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner. Um, you know, the, the reason why they're good at it and they're successful at it. Um, Compared to men, I I mean, there's a lot of men that are good at it as well. But if we're talking about talent, they're really good at it because they are able to know their fans, which is the most important thing. They are Mm. precious with what they deliver and they reward the people that follow them. You need to reward people. Just online, the number of people I know who have photo little gay boys who have photos with Taylor Swift outpaces just about everyone else. I never thought about it until now, but like she is making the time to like give these people like an authentic experience, but then also broadcast that on the internet right. so, that, so that other people get to feel like she would be my friend. Well, you have to, I mean, the thing is, is that that's exactly what it is. The I always go back to Tom Cruise's Twitter um, page. I love Tom Cruise. But the the one thing that's interesting is that the whoever's running a social media, and the same for Janet Jackson. Janet Jackson's social media, I love you. Your social media needs work. Like, you're <laughs> a legend, and you have 3.1 million fans, and you your stuff looks like Winamp skins, and, you know, like... <laughs> You're like I'm leaving the Earl that. in the tweet, and it looks ratchet. Sounded hard, though. But it, it's harsh. it's like you don't you talk to people as if you're still like Tom Cruise. Nice to meet me. And the thing is, is that you mm. have to sort of like start giving people. Selena Gomez did something. She produced. A, she had a song release this weekend. She started giving the links to people in her DMs, to her fans in the direct messages. Oh, wow. That's genius. That's totally genius strategy. Like, you need to also just... I get on there and I put everything, I lay everything out on the table and then I step away from it. But that's my brand. That's my persona. I gain 10 followers, lose five. It doesn't matter. I'm not worried about that. I need, this is who I am and that's sort of who I am in in person. Um, The strategy for a celebrity is that you have this entire audience, tens of millions of people, 
What do you do with them that keeps them there? Because as many people as they have following them, they lose just as many followers a day. There's also the whole difference between having a Facebook platform versus a Twitter platform versus an Instagram platform. Knowing the differences in how you serve each master, because they are the masters, is mm-hmm. also very key. And that's what I help people do. So when someone like, like CeeLo, maybe half a year ago, was tweeting stuff about basically what, how do you define rape and sexual assault and basically kind of ethering his career, how would you have advised him once that stuff was out there? What, what could he have done at that point? See, the thing is, is that no one takes social media strategy seriously, and that's what I really want to kind of change, is that you, you do actually have to approach your social media career like you approach going outside and being said talent. So, I mean, the first thing I would have done is, like, told him not to be tweeting and then to <laughs> – okay. no, no, no. already at the bag, though. No, 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 not to be tweeting and not – that sounds simplistic, but yeah. it's not. Stop everything. Okay. Make an apology. Okay. Then start strategically placing yourself in places where it – if you didn't really feel that and that was just a slip of the tongue, then show people. Okay. Do an Instagram. Got get it. somebody – you know, do something like that. Like, you can utilize – uh, uh, PR in that way. There, and, and a lot of people that I've encountered have not had the amount of experience that I've really truly had because I worked in entertainment with talent in multiple ways, working at a studio, working at a network, working in a journal as a journalist, so that I can see all of this, what's hmm. going to, the fallout is, is going to become. And the fact of the matter is that the internet is very nosy and will pull it out for you <laughs> if you don't address it. Yeah. I mean, just background here. Like, you're you're from San Francisco. You grew up in San Francisco. Where'd you go to college? I didn't go to college. Okay. I went to. I left high school a year early because I was over it, uh-huh. and um, I, like that. I just didn't want to go anymore. And I got a job. Um, I was really smart and precocious, and I was easily going to get a job. So I got a job working at like the radio station and uh, the San Francisco Magazine, and writing for the Chronicle, and traveling all. So over you the like place. knew from the beginning that you wanted yeah. to do media stuff. Yeah, from the very beginning. So I just like went and got jobs that, looking back, you guys, I should not have had these jobs. But there was something that I was always good at at each job, and it's, it's having tenacity and know how. I never really worked very well uh, answering to others. Well, you and I both like worked at Tech TV, which was that yeah like, one little weird option. Oh. For media, like for TV work in, in San, San Francisco. Francisco, and it sort of bridged both of our lives down here. Yeah, and I, I, I've got to be honest with you. Working at Tech TV was one of the, that was my college uh-huh. because I was with kids that are had just graduated from college, and a lot of our friends had just graduated, and they were like, or didn't go to college and just learned their shit there, learned their shit there. Yeah. But the shackles were off, and we were all sort of learning at the same time. And plus, it was watching this industry flourish. And being, I don't know if anybody listens, it was in San Francisco between 99 and 2001, but it was, like, pretty remarkable. I mean, the wheels were off the entire operation and everybody was, you know, I was, we would literally email Craig for Craigslist and get to the IPO parties and go to people's houses and eat all their food and drink all their booze and lay in their big, massive uh, houses. Late and just, 90s. Yeah, and just, <laughs> like, being kids and being in the internet and being in social media was definitely important to me, but entertainment was so much more important. If I'd stayed, I would have definitely have been more successful, I think. But, <laughs> and, and, you know what I mean? But, I, but, you know, that's kind of why I wanted to be in this industry. That's why I got here. Winner, ask me questions. Oh, God, I can't wait. <laughs> okay, Guy, I, I'm really excited to ask you these questions because I just feel like a kinship with you. Like, I didn't have an older brother, so I feel oh like... Oh, my God. <laughs> 
older. <laughs> Thanks so much. No, but you know what I mean. Like, I know what I you just, mean. Yes. It would have been like I would have. You would have been lovely as a Mitchell. Um, <laughs> and so I have all these questions for you that I, I wrote last night. And this sounds like I'm asking you to prom. Um, <laughs> and then I lay down the boom. Can you legally talk about the column that got the Secret Service into your apartment? Oh, yes. Okay. Um, wow. So, <laughs> Starting off with a bang here. Yes. So uh, I was a columnist for Berkeley's campus paper my senior year at Berkeley. And um, it was like big game between us and Stanford and I had gone to a party on a Tuesday night and got home and realized that I had forgotten about my deadline and so I needed to get something done by 2 a.m. <laughs> I've and, been there. Were you guys? drunk? I've been there many yes, times. I was completely drunk. And so I was like, well, it needs to be about the big game and it's Berkeley and nobody really pays attention to the big game unless you're like that 10% of campus that cares about football. So, but that was the year that you cared about football? I went to every game. I had... <laughs> I, I had like season tickets every year because of some like because I was in student government or right, then right. because of the paper and I never went. Um, but I that was the year that Chelsea Clinton had started at Stanford and there had been like a whole scandal about um, a columnist there writing about her and him getting fired because she couldn't be addressed. And I to this day have a problem with the weird way that the Clintons use her as this person who's both commenting on things but not supposed to be commented about. <laughs> um, it, it's like the the one, that and my love of Margaret Thatcher are the two residues from my teenage republicanism. <laughs> uh, Ooh, I didn't oh even my, know, about know about the teenage that. republicanism. Uh, oh Absolutely. I'm so okay, Barbara question. Walters, next question, uh, follow up. Uh, well, um, but uh, so then I, I wrote this thing that was basically like, you treat her like she's so fancy, but Berkeley's great because we educate everyone. And yeah, our campus is ugly and dirty, but that's just because we're doing the job of educating all of California and not just the elites. <laughs> but I used some strong language. I said, Chelsea Clinton represents the Stanford ethos of establishment worship, which must be subverted and destroyed. Which the AP <laughs> Wire then quoted as Chelsea Clinton dot 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 must be destroyed. Oh, so, AP Wire. Yeah. Mrs. Clinton saw that. And then she sent the Secret Service to my home. And it was the worst situation of I was trying to get a draft of my undergrad thesis done. <laughs> oh my and God. they like came and I was like, I have a paper to do. And I didn't. <laughs> and I didn't, thought this was all very adorable. I didn't realize that it was like my chance to like get out of something with my professor being right. like, I'm sorry, I'm in the middle of a political scandal. <laughs> um, but it was so funny because like the registrar's office called me and at Berkeley – the administration doesn't call you. Oh, my <laughs> like, God. You stand in a line for four hours to do anything. Um, so it was super, super scary. And my mom told me I couldn't be on television uh, because people would see me and um, <laughs> then want to do something to me. And I obeyed what she told me to do. Um, so I didn't do any interviews. But they didn't I, track you down. No, they like came to my home. Like the media was outside of my door all <gasps> the time. Uh, and there were all of these stories. The uh, the Moscow Times called me a bad boy invectivator. The, oh. Wa- the oh. Washington Post called me unfunny. Um, but it was this like magical like baby's first media cycle, <laughs> and it was like this really, you know. I, I after that I went off to law school and was like boring for three years and didn't do anything fun. But I had this sort of like thing in my head of like well, you can do splashy things. <laughs> Oh, you just have to talk shit about the first daughter, and there you go. It was terrible. I'm worried about. I'm worried about when the Clintons get back in the White House. You'll be fine. <laughs> How do you approach your comedy with your instincts? Oh, I mean, 
I go at this in a way less calculated way than most people. Like, I've always just been like, I became a comedian because I didn't want to have to be as poised and organized as you have to be to be a lawyer. <laughs> um, and so some people are very sort of like trying to make themselves as marketable as possible comedy-wise. And, you know, I've never been closeted on stage. I've never been particularly sort of like trying to make something that was super TV-friendly. Um and so it's nice that I've gotten the jobs that I have, uh, but it's also a little sort of surprising. I talk about what I want to. And sometimes that can be a problem. Sometimes when I go to a cafe and write and just write about cafes, like that becomes a problem. <laughs> I need to push myself out of my zone. But one of the things I really like about stand-up is it is the rare creative endeavor where you are constantly – using your instincts and using other people's reactions to sort of like guide what goes on. It's not stand-up if you're not doing it in front of people. It's not stand-up if you're not doing it constantly to sort of like learn about the joke and learn about how you should be talking about it. And it's a weird and stupid thing to do, but I like how much it's trained my stage persona at least. Like how much it's trained me to just be on a stage and be in possession of myself. What's your most prized possession? Oh, that is a really good question. I mean, I'm not really a possessions person. <laughs> um, I have, oh, um, I'm more an events person than a possessions person. So it means I have in my, um, in my like spare room, there's a container and it has the excess yamokas from all of my <laughs> Passovers in the past. Like nice. my splashy, overwritten, overproduced Passover is the greatest expression of myself. Like it is... <laughs> Like, my overproduced dinner party is me at my most complete. Hmm. Like, forcing all of my friends, not unlike this right here, forcing all of my friends. So you have a Seder that you host? I I host it. I write it. So, like, normally. I want to go. I want to go. Can we all come next year, please? I'll bring something. Of course you guys are invited. Manischewitz. No plus ones. And when people offer to cook something and bring something, I make clear that that's not appropriate. Oh, well, oh my God! Like, I'm going to be in charge of your okay. experience. Okay, okay. You show up game to play. Like, you show up ready. I've got no problem with to that. Do what you're told to do, but Word. play games, and it will be a completely realized totally experience. Totally fine. Totally fine. Although, I, with those yarmulkes, like, Every year, there's like Do I some, have to wear one? something embroidered on the inside, just for boys. Okay, um, embroidered on the inside. There's like a, some sort of phrase and what year it was. And one year, I just tried to get oh fuck yeah, <laughs> completely forgetting <laughs> that I was dealing with a religious goods organization. <laughs> and they were just like, no, we're not doing that. What? <laughs> this is a really good one that I had. What is something that you're just not very good at? Oh, I feel like I'm only very good at things or really, really terrible at them. Uh, I would say, I mean, God, I'm terrible at so many things. Basketball, I'm like super, super bad at basketball. Um, I can't ride a bike. I never learned to ride a bike. My mom like got impatient like teaching me to ride a bike and we didn't like have sidewalks or anything so it was just like this one square of concrete where I would get to ride a bike. So I was like, fuck this, this is stupid. I'm going to go walk around the orchard with a stick and pretend to be a wizard. <laughs> who's been somebody who's really bitchy to you? Oh. That you can talk about. Well, the reason I became a stand-up comedian was in a very 1998 way. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to It's Garofalo. Like Gar- <gasps> Gar- Garofalo, no. I worshiped her so much 
And I've only had terrible experiences with her oh. until the most recent. Um, Rich no. Oh, God, I don't want to. I don't know if I'll... we can. Uh, if 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 you talk about it I, next time, I can talk about Whitney Cummings fat shaming me at Soul Cycle. Okay. Um, <laughs> Twice. I mean, but the thing is, is we had a uh, we had a lovely interaction at at Bridgetown this year, and it made me feel better. But it is there is something so interesting and wonderful about being at a point in your career where the people you really looked up to are people who you like deal with. Yeah. Like um, Karen Kilgariff was like one of my heroes of stand up. And now she was at Pride on Sunday. Like she's just a friend who I get salads with. Yeah. Or like, you know, like there are so many women in the industry who do not get the respect that they deserve, who were the people I looked up to. Uh, and now they're people who I can just book for something if I email them or I Who was bitchy to you? <laughs> that was the question. Okay. I think, I think we know the answer. Uh, right. uh, uh, <laughs> we got it. I appreciate everyone who's fabulous and amazing. I can name and just as many of them. I already answered that question <laughs> and I am on record. I have, a, I have a question, which is, what do you think of the argument that the climate for comedians has gotten harder now because of people's political sensitivities? You buy that? Uh, I mean, there is a way that audiences learning new things about politics does cause them to be unnuanced in the way that they can approach jokes sometimes. A San Francisco audience is going to seize up about some things that without listening to the joke. Mm. But the thing is, is it's more likely to be like the Holocaust than it is something that's like newer and more nuanced like like trans stuff and honestly i think to the extent that and i recently saw a a comic i respect so much and like so much do some jokes about caitlin jenner before she came out um and an audience just was not accepting those and i think that that's kind of great because it's recognizing the humanity of a group of people we used to just use as a punching bag mm. i honestly think the situation is more just that more and different voices are being reflected in the world around us. Mm-mm. So an audience that used to be full of men and women, but ignoring that women are human beings who have experiences, used to laugh at jokes that were terrible about women. And now we're just a little bit more likely to remember that or have an actual factual woman who's going to get up on that stage. The thing is, is, in these arguments and debates, I can never get away from the fact that I'm a faggot and that I've been at a lot of shows where an unending parade of faggot jokes were told. And if I wasn't getting up, nothing else would be said. And when I get on stage, like, how much I'm composed of scar tissue at comedy shows of just sort of, like, me having to get up in a scrappy way and sort of say, like, fuck no, there is a... The thing that you were talking about is not real. I am the reality of Mm -hmm, the situation. mm -hmm. And I wasted a lot of time on stage that I should have used on my own material, but I would not... I would not take back what I did Mm. because it was about representing. And it taught me a lot about just owning your own skin. Mm. Um, Deflating. You're not giving it power. Right. Um, And so I I, sometimes dude comedians will be very like, hey, you don't want to be like those bad people. You want to be one of us. And I just have to remember they weren't that interested in me being one of us Mm. in 2003. Mm. And that in that world – in a comedy seller world of comedy, I will always be a, a niche thing. Mm. Uh, and it is only in this different and more exciting world where my voice is a voice. Do you want me to pat myself on the back more? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I think I have one more question, and it's what's your favorite mistake? Oh, 
Um, my favorite mistake. That's a great question. Uh, in so many ways, like, <laughs> you're asking a question that is, like, filled with ambiguity. And I, the thing for me that is most filled with ambiguity was my choice at the end of 2010 to leave Chelsea Lately. Splashily and in a way that they weren't comfortable with uh, and was rough. Um, and, like, so many times since then, I've been like, how much cushier would my life have been if I had just bitten my tongue about some things and played the game and stayed there? And there are so many ways that my life <laughs> would be... I mean, I would make more from touring. I would, you know, I would be better positioned for acting stuff and, and so many things. But then when I think about just the variety of jobs that I've gotten to do since then, mm -hmm. like a couple of years afterwards, I got to guest on this like CBS multicam that like didn't even air all the way and none of my episodes aired. But like as I was walking <laughs> out of like a CBS soundstage or a Warner Brothers soundstage, like after having been on a multicam, I was like... This is a thing I would not have gotten to do if I had not left. Like, right. there are all of these other things I've gotten to experience. And if the point of life is to be rich and settled, then it was a terrible mistake. But if the point of life is to get to do cool things, I've gotten to do some cool things. And, like, my relationship with Chelsea is better now. And, I mean, the thing that sort of, like, was hardest about that was having some people who I really cared about not be people who I could be around anymore for a while. Mm. Um, Did they not, uh, they probably alienated you. I mean, the thing is, is everyone was lovely except for the core of, of her and her like core producing staff. Because mm -hmm. um, those dudes didn't like me because I would say things that disagreed with what they said. <laughs> but now she's done with them. And so it's... So you're on to bigger and better. I'm so proud of you. Maybe not bigger, but better. My own. Well, thank you very much, Winner. I tried to be as Oprah Barbara Waltersy as I could. It was it was very Barbara Walters. It was okay, very good. what kind of tree can I be? She's <laughs> the answer is of course an almond tree. Wait, guy, I want to ask you one question. Yes. I want to know specifically when the moment was that you were like, I can be a comedian, I can really do this. I can make this a career. Yeah, that was one of mine. I should have asked oh, that, but that's I great, mean, Margaret. That's actually a, a funny thing because I, I like barely did it at the end of college and then I when I came back from law school, it was honestly just about settling my head from – I came out like after the first year of law school and I thought I was going to go be a lawyer and I was just like settling my head after a really big depression mm. in um, uh, Minneapolis. Um, and it was <laughs> – it was tech TV. Like it was honestly like I uh, had been doing this thing and trying at it but I was a little bit older I was gay. I had this graduate degree and I was not just one of the like little white boys in hoodies mm. who sort of understood <laughs> that they were going after this hard. And I didn't have nice bougie parents who would be able to fix things if I ruined a couple of years of my life. Um, and I was applying for jobs. I had passed the bar and I was applying for jobs as a lawyer. This is like two years after getting back. And my friend Laura told me about a job at Tech TV and I... Uh, Applied for it and in my head just had this literal concrete notion that to get this job would be – and now I look at that job. It was a fucking web writer job. It paid so little money and all mm. of those things. And when I got it, I was – it was like as good as coming out. It was as good as coming out mm. in that sense of mm. I don't have to lead the life that I thought I was supposed to lead. I get to like make a life. Mm. It was super great. I love it. It really fostered dreams there. Oh, uh, It did. 
All right. Well, we'll be right back after this for me to ask Ms. Margaret Wampler some important questions. Stick around for more Pop Rockers. Very important questions. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Hal. And we're the hosts of We Got This. The show that offers definitive answers to dumb debates that you suggest. Every Wednesday, we discuss the hot-button topics you never knew you cared so much about, like whether you should put ketchup on a hot dog. What's the best Star Wars movie? Whether it's better to be too hot or too cold. Coke or Pepsi? Best Marvel movie. Which is the best religion? I told you we're not doing that one. So join us every week on MaximumFun.org. And don't worry, everyone. We got this. We got this. Welcome back to a very special Pop Rocket. I would be using my low and somber voice, but everyone told me to stop. And so I, I liked stopped. It. I liked no, it. I liked it. Uh, so today we're talking, we're learning a little bit more about each other. But let's remind everybody who's in the room. Winner Mitchell. Margaret Wappler. Oliver Wang. Uh, and I'm Guy Branham with uh, a couple of questions for respected journalist Margaret Wampler. <laughs> Hello. Margaret, you alone amongst us are not a Californian natively. You are from Chicago. Yeah, although this is a little tricky because I actually was born out here. Oh, really? Where? Yeah, um, in Upland, California. Interesting. Yeah, my parents lived in Claremont. My dad used to teach at the Claremont School of Theology. So I was born out here. Two of my oldest brothers went to college out here. But my parents moved when I was five years old. And we moved to – and this is going to get really – you guys are – your heads are going to spin a little bit. We moved to Alabama. And we lived in rural Alabama for a while. Oh. And that was not that cool. Was your um, dad but a professor place. there? Or? No. My dad was a minister and a professor. And at that point in his career, he did more of the ministering. So it was a small church there. And then we moved to Oak Park, which is right outside of Chicago when I was 10. So, I'm so from all so over the place. Cool. <laughs> Suburban Chicago. Yeah. How John Hughes of an experience is this? You know, it was not John Hughes enough in a way because <laughs> I was is. I was on I'm Oak Park is the first suburb west of Chicago, so it has a different vibe than a lot of the suburbs that you see in the John Hughes movies. Those are the northern suburbs, and so it's a little more tonier up there. Whereas Oak Park was like I mean, there's some affluence there, but it's not quite as like Richie Rich as a lot of the John Hughes movies are set in those suburbs what denomination was your dad my dad was an episcopalian minister that's real classy yeah that's that's the church of england they're not saying that anybody's burning in hell they're just getting phds right yeah exactly they're not trying to oppress people that hard in in the range of it all did your mom what did your mom do uh, my mom is a librarian, um, and I actually come from a f- family of librarians. Two of my brothers are librarians, mm. and a cousin of mine is a librarian. So Peaceful there's a l- upbringing. All these bibliophiles. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, is this where the rock and roll comes from? Is this <laughs> maybe like there was some? I had to rebel in some kind of way. No, I mean, my dad. My dad passed away when I was 15, but he was a really. Um, he had a great ear. He was a huge opera fan. He had tons of records. I grew up just listening to a lot of music. My older brothers also um, huge. You know, I mean, I still have so many classic rock songs just stuck in my head at all times from them playing things. But um, yeah, I just grew up really loving music um, and, and gravitating towards it. And I, I, I was a singer for a long time because I was a minister's daughter. I had to be like in every choir of every <laughs> church. So I really just, yeah, I loved it. Like, 
what's your relationship to religion conceptually? Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, I always just say that I'm agnostic, that I have no idea. And in a way, I feel like it's the most intelligent position to hold as a person because, like, we can never really know, right? And I actually love the idea of not knowing. I love the mystery of not knowing how this world was made and not really knowing what was out there. And I I don't ever feel comfortable saying I'm a believer and then I don't ever feel comfortable saying I'm an atheist. Like, it just doesn't – none of them feel right to me. In childhood, was it a thing that, like – because it was around you, did you take it for granted or did were these questions that sort of like got in your head? Well, for a long time, I was really against organized religion because it got so shoved down my throat that it was just like constantly like, you know, my I had to go to church every Sunday and I had to look a certain way and I had to perform a certain thing. And so did my mom as like the minister's wife. I mean, it's a very like weirdly political role. And I really grew up resenting it for a long time, and I pushed it all away from me until you know, probably when I was in my mid-20s, I started to sort of be like, okay, you don't have to be a practicing religious person yourself, but you can just have a peaceful relationship with it. What do you love most in the world when you were 12 years old? Oh, God. When I was 12 years old? I mean, probably animals. Like, I really wanted to be a vet at that point in my life. Um, were you a horse girl? <laughs> I was not. I was really a cat girl. Uh-huh. I was way into <laughs> cats. Like I really Head loved. The time there. <laughs> yeah, right. He doesn't kick to like fifty or so, but yeah. Yeah, I invented the internet cat. Thing. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I love cats. I was obsessed with them. I watched Thundercats after school every day. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's get into this then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thundercats. It's a standard situation where you've. I mean, you've got like one and a half options. You've got Chitara and you've got Wiley Cat. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about in those sort of cartoons of our childhood having to – did you defiantly identify with Panthro or did you love Chitara? Oh, Chitara all the way. Yeah. Like I was obsessed with cheetahs. I actually did a fourth grade like 20-page report on cheetahs uh-huh. where I just stood up in front of my class and, you know, was like, cheetahs run 66 miles per hour. I mean I still remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and cheetahs, my husband knew was – I loved them so much as creatures that it actually played into the way he proposed to me. It was involving How did he cheetahs. propose? Um a cheetah came out of the woods. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a cheetah came out of the woods holding a diamond ring. Um, no, he uh, he did this whole thing where we were hiking together and we got to the top of Mishimakwa Trail, uh, the Santa Monica Mountains, and he handed me this magazine. It was a National Ge- Geographic magazine. It had a cheetah on the cover. And I was like, "What? why are you handing this to me right now? And then I looked at it kind of again more and realized that there was a ring kind of like in the cheetah's mouth, like that he had cut into the magazine, you know, so the cheetah was like holding the ring. It was really sweet. So that's adorable. (laughs) That's lovely. And books. And your love. Yeah, and magazines. Okay. So how did you get here to California? Um, okay, so I was working for an alt-weekly in Chicago called New City, and mm-hmm. I was writing about books and film and TV and food and all sorts of things there. It was a great, like, first job to have after college because you got to write about just about anything you wanted to, and that was, you Did know, you go to college in Chicago or somewhere? I did, yeah. I went to Columbia College out there, oh. and um, you got to write about anything there, which was with the great things about alt-weeklies that, like, maybe doesn't exist in the same way anymore. Yeah, they don't. They no, don't. they don't. So I was there, um, and I started to really feel like I wanted to write a book. I wanted to write a novel. 
Um, and I've always had that kind of creative side to me. In fact, the reason I really wanted to write about like books and film and TV and all of that stuff is because I wanted to talk to artists. I wanted to think about how art works. I wanted to think about stories. So I ended up applying to CalArts and I got the best package from them. So I moved out to L.A. How in Valencia? <laughs> well, I didn't live in Valencia ever, no. Where'd you, where'd you commute from? L.A. Okay. Just Silver Lake. Uh, to Valencia? Yeah, but I, I went during low traffic time, so it was, like, pretty easy. Also, Silver yeah. Lake the whole time. You've always been an Eastsider. No, well, Silver Lake, Koreatown, and Echo Park have been the main places I've lived. Okay, but this... All, all the, Eastside, the, basically. The, the hike that was your proposal, yeah. the <laughs> outfits that you show up every week, you are deeply, <laughs> deeply, like, deeply Los Angeles. When did you become a Californian? When did you become Los Angeles? Well, in a way, I always thought I might move back here. Because like I said, my family did live out here. My two oldest brothers went to college out here. I always did feel this connection to Southern California. And so when I got into CalArts, I was happy to come out here. I was really excited about it. And I think, though, when I became like a true Angelino is when I had to go back to other cities and defend <laughs> Los Angeles. <laughs> like going back to Chicago and explaining to all those people uh, like, yeah, yeah, I decided to move out there. And having so many people say, well, I lived in Long Beach for six months and it sucks out there. Why would you want to live out there? And I'd be like, um, well, A, you lived in Long Beach for six months. Right. You're not really an authority on anything about Southern California. <laughs> also, but, Long Beach is surprisingly great. Yeah, yeah. no, Long Beach is yeah. charming. And so I think just in, in the defending of it, I was like, I love Los Angeles. And I do. I really still staunchly love the city. When did you start writing? Um, I've always written. Always. I had... I've, I've kept journals since I was about four or five years old. Mm -hmm. So every, every like, week I would write what I did that day or, like, the things I was interested in or even my opinions on my schoolmates. I used to write plays for the stuffed animals that I had. And then when I was in high school, I joined the newspaper staff. So that was probably, like, the most deliberate movement I made towards, like, being a writer. But I think I always knew I was going to do something with writing. I have an uncle who's a writer who's a you know, novelist. And so it felt like it was in my range of possibilities. What's the relationship between cross-training, sort of like journalistic-y, non-fiction-y stuff, and then like the for you, Margaret's art kind of – because you're – it's that situation where like you're paying the bills with journalism like from high school. That's a, a – like it's rails that you're on. But then there's this other stuff that you want out. How do you balance that? Well, I was always determined to make a living from writing. You're always told that when you're studying it in school that it's really hard to do, that it's really hard to make your money from writing. And I thought, no, I'm going to figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so doing it just by writing novels is, is really difficult and almost impossible, although there are a tiny handful of people that do it. But I was grateful that I had all these other interests. I have all this, all this interest in pop culture, and I just see it as being like I'm taking in other people's creative energy and then I'm pushing it out on the other side in my own projects. And I think that for me, it's really important to have that kind of like churn going on all the time. That like as much as I'm studying and thinking about what other people are doing, I'm also involved in some sort of raw creation myself. When did you first read The Handmaid's Tale? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, I read that in my mid-20s, um, and I just loved it. I was actually one of those books that, like, I, f I read it, I finished it, I went right back to the first page and started reading it again. Wow. I just was like, I need to know how this works. I need to study this thing. Mm -hmm. And, you, like, what struck me is reading more of your stuff, the way that sort of, like, environments and spaces 
like affects stories and that's such an Atwood thing mm-hmm. that like was never the thing that I loved about Atwood but was always present and so I was exposed to it as I read more and more of hers and I was just wondering was that something that you just identified with her or like how did that become part of the thing that you care about in writing? Well, I love about Margaret Atwood that she's both concerned with like an internal space, what it like internal thought, the way that we think as humans, and then also how that gets shaped by whatever it is around us. Like in The Handmaid's Tale, I mean, there's there's this whole political climate that is compressing and shaping the way people are thinking in that world, um, including thinking in these really tyrannical ways. Um, so I think I just really love that she did that. And I've always tried to do that in my own work. Just like keep keep a sensitivity and a, and a temperature taking about what people are thinking on the inside, but then also be aware of all the things that are outside that affect us and the way that those shape us and impact the way we act towards each other. How did you meet David? Um, David and I met at a Halloween party that was in Ava Gardner's old house. <laughs> oh, my God. Were, were you a cheetah? Uh, I wish. <laughs> that would have been great. Um, no, he was dressed as Errol Flynn, and I was oh, just— Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> I can't even How were you supposed you right to now? resist? <laughs> so he looked very handsome, and I remember just, like, looking across the room, and I was just sort of this general, like, 20s flapper girl— and I looked across the room and I was like, that guy's really handsome. Who is he? And then I spent about 20 minutes that night, like, talking to him. And we and it felt like one of those things where, like, every place that he went in the room, I was, like, aware. You know, on some level, I was just like, where is he? Where is he all the time? But, but you know, trying to keep it cool. And but this is this is an interesting story because it was it was still not like several years later we got together. That was just we met. Whoa. We, uh, you know, kind of kept track of each other because we had friends that sort of were hanging out and dating each other and that kind of thing. But it was always one of these things where I was with somebody or he was with somebody. And Mm. then finally, about five years after that original meeting, Mm. we both were single. And and then it was like on. So how long between that point and now? How long have you been together? Um, how long have we been together? Uh, what an awkward way of asking. <laughs> <laughs> we got together in the summer of 2011. Okay. Yeah. Um, what would I have liked most about your wedding? <laughs> the mason um, jars, definitely the mason jars. Right, right. We had a tower of mason jars that we posted. I did on not top speak of. critically. I only <laughs> criticized their ubiquity. We did not. You, you know what? We didn't have any. I don't think we had any mason jars there. I don't know. Maybe there were some flowers and some mason jars. But it was on the beach in Malibu at this amazing house that an architect named Harry Gesner designed. And uh, a friend of a friend uh, hooked me up with this house. Wait, was this. Which house is this? It's um, it's just Harry Gesner's house. Like he lives there, the architect. What does it look like? Um, it looks like this awesome ramshackle surfing like beach hut. Okay. It's it's wood and all from found wood from hmm. like the sixties. It's it's really it's a great place. And so we got married. Right when it was high tide and there was just these, like, great crashing sounds as we were, like, wow. exchanging the vows. It was really beautiful. That's lovely. It's very it's very L.A. <laughs> very <laughs> yes, Margaret. exactly. Very Margaret. Um, okay. So you contributed uh, a piece to an anthology called Here She Comes Now, which is mostly female writers talking about um, female musicians. It seems like a lot of what you do is – 
writing about other art forms. Like sort of you do a lot of writing about visual art. You do a lot of writing about like music. What drew you to that? What, why are you into that? Well, I think early on in my writing career, I wrote a lot about books as a writer. And after a while, it started to feel like I was just in this sort of feedback loop with myself and other people like myself as a writer. And so I wanted to think about um, other other impulses that go into creation. And so when I talk to a musician and they have an entirely different way of like thinking about it, that's really fascinating to me. And it's the same with like visual artists or and you and both you and David, like David's a professional visual artist, yeah. right? And you do a fair amount of visual art, right? I mean, I've done a little bit, but nothing. I mean, I would never call myself one, but he, yeah, I mean, he does collage mainly and also teaches art. So, I mean, that kind, those kinds of conversations that we can have. And he also has a writing background. So um, we end up talking a lot about like just those different disciplines and how they overlap. I'm glad things are working out for the two of you. <laughs> Thank you. I think we're switching gears now. I'm so, I don't know how to make these transitions smooth. Okay. Enough about you. I do want to say that really quick, though, because I'm really happy about this, and I just get to announce this, is mm. that I have a novel coming out next summer. Oh. Yeah. Yay. Nice. So my novel will be out, and it's called Neon Green, and you guys will hear all about it. So, all right. Yeah. That's awesome, Wapler. That's what we're it's all very about. very exciting. <laughs> Neon Green. Yeah. Margaret, do you have any questions to ask Oliver? Oh, yeah. Okay. Mr. Oliver Wang. Yes. Ms. Wapler. Wobbler. Wobbler. Sorry. Come on. Wobbler. Rhymes with Doppler. <laughs> um, okay. So you're a DJ and you have a huge vinyl collection. I want to hear about one of your most treasured items. Uh, okay. So I have to first start by saying that, you know, I get this question a lot and it's hard to have one single answer because my relationship to music is always changing. And so what I hear, this, a song I hear in 2015 is not the same way I would have heard it five years ago. And it won't be the same way I hear it five years from now. So I would say, you know, right now, what, what comes to mind would probably be this seven inch by um, Sugar uh, Billy Gardner called I Got Some. Um, it is a really, really uh, awesome funk 45. It's very obscure. Uh, and the reason why I have I had sentimental value to it is because it was a single that originally uh, was in the collection of Matthew Africa, who was uh, a friend and a mentor who uh, was uh, killed in a, a, a car accident two years ago. Mm. And I got it actually through uh, a mutual friend of ours, Cool Chris Veltry, who runs the Groove Merchant in San Francisco, my favorite record store on the planet. And so me and... Chris was doing a trade, and one of the things that I wanted was I got some because it was a single I always associated. And this was before Matthew had passed away, but it was always a single I had associated with Matthew because it's a—I mean, it's a killer single. It's insanely expensive, and Matthew and I had done a fundraiser show for KLX, which was the radio show where I got my start as a DJ in Berkeley uh, in the '90s. And um, you know, Matthew had brought that in for a fundraiser show, and I was just kind of agog at the fact that he brought in like an original, you know, Sugar Billy Ray Gardner. Uh, seven inch. Um, this is very long winded, which all to say that I just always had this association with Matthew. It's a fantastic single and it was one of top of my want list. And so the fact that Chris had gotten his copy from Matthew and then traded that copy to me, um, it means a lot for me to have this sort of remnant that used to be Matthew's as someone who was a very important person in my musical development. Mm. So when you're a DJ and you're at the event and you're looking around at people, how do you gauge the crowd? 
Um, I mean, the only way to really do it is you just begin playing music and then you kind of figure it out from there. Um, you know, I write about this in, in my new book, looking at DJs and DJing culture, that it's it's really a trust relationship. People talk about the, the appeal of DJing is that you're in control, but you're only in control to the extent that the audience and the crowd gives you that control. And so mm. there's, there's sort of, I think this is a something that uh, I heard Questlove talk about one time, is that there's sort of this mutual trust that gets built in a very small way and then gets built throughout the evening and that the crowd is trusting you as the DJ that you're going to play music that they like and then you trust the crowd that they will respond appropriately and let you kind of, you know, not have to drop fancy in the first 10 minutes, but you can really, you know, have a diversity of what you're you're able to, to launch into. I mean, what most DJs will say is that if you know, the, the dream is that you can play anything you want and the crowd reacts positively to it. And yeah, that is the fantasy we all have. But you only get there because you build that trust, you know, throughout the first first hour, second hour. And then at the top of the night, you know, you can kind of get away with whatever you want uh, only because you have that mutually, you know, constitutive relationship that you build with the audience. Mm. So you're an academic, a writer, a DJ, and a parent. So can you walk us through a typical day? Um. I don't know. Sure. Uh, let's see. I usually take my daughter to school, so I need to be up uh, and ready to be out of the house by eight o'clock. And I'm not a morning person. I am a night owl by <laughs> biology, and so I, you know, I do a lot of my best writing and thinking at like midnight. So having to to w- wake up to take a, an elementary school child to school not 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 the funnest thing, but I've I've learned to do that. Um, you know, I try to get writing done in the morning simply because I want to preserve those evening hours to hang out with my family, but I can try to be a morning writer. I'm not really a morning writer. Um, I can answer emails. That's feeling quasi productive, and that, that you know I'll you know I'll spend a lot of an inordinate amount of time perhaps on Facebook and Twitter uh, in those AM hours. Um, usually, when I'm not on days and I'm not teaching, lunch is a really big deal for me. Partly because I don't I usually don't eat breakfast, and so lunch is the first meal of the day. I'm usually eating it by myself. Or with a friend, but it's not with the family. And so I get to choose where I want to go. And so I'll spend a lot of time, maybe too much time, thinking about where do I want to go for lunch today? Um, and I've used that as, as an excuse to really explore Los Angeles as a culinary city. Um, not to correct you, Guy, but I'm actually I'm – I'm not a native. I grew up in Boston in the 1970s. So I only came oh. out to L.A. in, in 1982. Um, so anyways – uh, so th- that's part of it is, is figuring out where to go for lunch. And then the afternoon is when I'm supposed to have the biggest block of time to be really productive and it never pans out that way. So maybe I'm spending some time working on an assignment or working on a lesson plan. Um, but somehow my afternoons – like my mornings are not crazy productive but they look incredibly well done compared to my afternoons. <laughs> and then if I'm really on deadline, I'll actually hammer out good work in the evening after my wife's gone to bed. Mm. What's your personal idea of success? Like, what does the good life look like to you? Hmm. I mean, my impulse is to say it's, it's, I feel like I'm living that right now. Um, you know, I'm 42, I'm turning 43 in a couple months. And I, I had this thought earlier in the year, which is that I've exceeded every expectation uh, or desire I might have had when I was in my 20s. So now that I've doubled that, I've pretty much done everything that I set out to do. Um, I'm not sure where to go from here in that mm. sense. And so I guess to answer your question, though, you know, success looks like being able – I mean this is really cliche, but it's being able to make a living doing what you love doing or at least being happy with what it is. 
um, you know, I think we we talked about this in a previous show. What would I if I could reboot the career? What I, what would I've considered doing instead? And I said filmmaking. I'm not about to go out and become a filmmaker again. But you know, I feel like the things I wanted to do when I was in my 20s, like I'm doing all of those things. I'm exceeding all of those things. Um, so you know, it's I think it's it's simply having had the freedom to pursue what it is that I wanted to do and being able to make a living and support my family doing that. That feels incredibly satisfying. But real estate. Just like high-end real estate. <laughs> See, my mom was a realtor, and I feel like, and you know, my cousins have all. I have cousins who've gotten into real estate management. I just, for some reason, I just feel like that might be some inevitability somewhere down the line, but uh, not yet. What are the classes you currently teach? Uh, let's see. So for this upcoming fall, I will be teaching a class on introduction to sociology. I teach the senior honors thesis course, which is a seminar. And uh, a new course, which is for the University Honors Program, it's going to be about um, arts and culture in Los Angeles. And I'm very excited to teach that because since moving back to L.A. in 2006 from the Bay, um, I've gotten really – I've become definitely a homer for for L.A. And, you know, I grew up here in the 1980s, but uh, I think coming back as an adult and rediscovering the city as an adult has made me have a really profound relationship to understanding the city and all of its sort of complex ugliness and beauty. Uh, and so I, I certainly read and write a lot about L.A., but I haven't taught much about L.A. And this is sort of an excuse to kind of cobble together all of these random ideas I have about the city um, in various facets and and try to put that into a, some kind of syllabus, which I haven't started yet. So we'll have to see how that pans out. Okay. I saw that you have a blog with some other Asian dads called Rice Daddies. Yeah. Tell us about that. So I started it uh, with um, – uh, one or two other people, and this was probably must have been around 2005, which was the year my daughter was born. And the idea behind, I mean, number one, I was really into blogging into in in the mid 2000s. So you know, Soul Sides was the as blog we I all were as we all were. I was on <laughs> blogs. I have, I mean, if you look if you log into my Blogspot account, I think it still exists, right? Blogspot hasn't hasn't disappeared yet. There is, I I mean, there has to be about a dozen blogs that I I created at one point or other. Rice Daddies was one of the ones that I I, I, I co created. And the reason I did it at the time was because I had basically three or four really good stories I wanted to talk about. And then I realized once I was done with that, that's about all I had to say about parenthood. And I've (laughs) I've never posted, I mean, barely since then. And I don't know what it is. I just, parenthood, I love it, but it's not something that I really feel like writing about, maybe because I'm really just turned off at the kind of parenthood industrial complex that exists among out there. Um, I don't need to contribute to that. Um, I mean, I write about music, and God knows that's overwritten. But, but yeah, I have no, I have no real parenting advice for people besides like the three or four like what I thought were humor stories that compelled me to co-start the blog. But since then, like I got nothing else to do with it, which I, I feel kind of bad about. But it's like I'm out. That was it. I had those three stories. That's <laughs> right. it. You got all your rice daddy yeah. stories out. Yeah, basically. Um, well, last question for you, and then I'll let you, these guys ask you something. But what would 25 year old Oliver be surprised to know about current Oliver? Actually, probably that I'd be married and have a kid. I mean, I, I can't remember when I was 25 what I envisioned for myself down the road. Probably, I'm guessing I would probably imagined being married. I think I, pro- I probably would have been someone ambivalent about parenthood. Um, you know, I mean, this is not a big secret. It's a story I tell a lot of folks. But, uh, you know, my daughter Ella was not planned. And partially it's, you know, the, the, the idea that two people can have this or even just one person can make this decision. Yeah, I feel ready for parenthood. That just seems slightly insane to me because how could you possibly know that if you haven't already gone through it? And, you know, Sharon and I were very ambivalent and we would go back and forth about 
well, you know, we'd been together for long enough. We had, we had the conversation. We, mm-hmm. weren't, we weren't married yet. But it was like, do you want to have a kid? It's like, I don't know. I don't really feel ready for it. And, and who knows when that will happen? And instead, we got pregnant by accident. I was like, well, I guess we're ready now because we're going to go through with this. Um, and so I think that you know, 25-year-old me probably would have been surprised to know that like, I would eventually have a child out in the world. Um, you know, other than that, I mean, my, my first glib reaction is like, man, your record collection is so much better than I would have imagined <laughs> dreaming about. Like, I, have a, I like my collection. It's pretty good. Yeah. I just, I'm so envious of heterosexuals being able to accidentally make children. Like, it just feels like I, I cannot understand the sort of, like, deciding. I have two questions for you. Okay. The first one is, how do you know Shang Wang? I know Shing because Shing was my student. Uh, oh, at, really? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I TA'd and taught classes at Berkeley, which is where Guy and I were, both went to school. Uh, I mean, we also have another mutual acquaintance in Josh Greenberg, who was my sophomore year uh, roommate at Cal oh. <laughs> in Unit 3. Yeah, you told me that before, yeah. I think. Yeah, um, but I know Shing because Shing was one of my students in a class. I was a TA, Kip Fulbeck, who is a sort of well-known uh, kind of hapa an uh, artist and professor at UC Santa Barbara. He was teaching a class on Asian American film and video, and I was his TA. And Shang was one of my students. I'm pretty sure that's how I know Shang. It was one of my students in the class. Um, and uh, he's also good friends. Uh, one of the, my other students from that class, Patrick Huang, is now a DJ in L.A., and we actually work together a lot. And so I've kept ties to Shang because Shang and Patrick are really close, and I'm close with Patrick and blah, blah, blah. Well, also, Shang is an amazing stand-up yes, comedian. Yes, and he's a comedian. You should enjoy. Yeah. All right. The question I have for you is, what did you hate most about Berkeley? What did you love most about Berkeley? Um, the College Republicans was the first thing that came to my mind, which you might have been one back then. I was. <laughs> it's just the way they dressed. And they're just, it's the, the whole kind of – their whole – they were just – they had just such a obnoxious, like, white entitlement look to them. Well, and it's just they were performing that all the time. And I'm like, you can – I don't mind – like, whatever your political ideology is, that's one thing. But – Do you just have to present yourself like that? Well, the thing is, is it's like you're going to Berkeley wrong. Like you are – there are those people who are like trying to go to this school that's like good at academics and kind of okay at sports. And it's like, no, you're part – like you're at some sort of weird place about learning and sharing and like – and not bathing. Mostly it's a place that's about (laughs) not bathing and just wearing a lumpy cow sweatshirt for four years. Right. And honestly, it was like just the magic of Berkeley putting me into that not bathing, caring about everybody else's world sort of thing. Well, it was also the 90s. Yes. Not a good time for bathing. Uh, and it just it, – <laughs> it, petted, it petted me to a point that I was like, oh, no, you're neither a Republican nor heterosexual. But what did you, what did you love most about Berkeley? Uh, being able to look out across the bay and see San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge in nice days. Uh, you know, would I say San Francisco? What, what was your freshman year dorm? Oh, I lived in Unit Three. I was on the wrong side of, it, so I didn't have a view of the Bay. But it's, it's at Berkeley in the dorms. It all comes down to whether you're right. on the you, Bay side. You're either on this side where you have a million dollar view and it's amazing, yeah. or you can see the dining commons. <laughs> I was on the dining commons side of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I you know I go back to the Bay Area a few times a year because my wife's family's from there. And that's just coming from the East Bay and, and just being able to see the city um, and the bay in, in, in its full glory, that, it, it, that, that never gets old for me. It's, it's still one of the most gorgeous things I know. Winner, any questions for Oliver Wang? I was going to – sort of the same question you asked, but would you prefer NorCal or SoCal? 
I mean, right now, definitely SoCal. And I mean, when I left LA, I left LA in 1990. I went up there for school. And at that time, I grew up in the SGV. And I was definitely on some like, you know what, fuck LA, LA sucks. Because I was a teenager and I was ignorant. I really had never really explored the city outside of like my little pocket of the Pasadena area. And I grew up in San Marino. And if you know anything about San Marino, it's easy to understand why one would have a very negative kind of relationship to it. Um, and I loved being in the Bay. I mean, being in the Bay in the 90s was fantastic on any number of levels, especially for me as someone who was getting into hip hop. I mean, that was a great time for KML. Um, you know, it was just a, it was a vibrant underground scene there. Um, and we had a real world in 94. That's right. <laughs> right. And simply, I, I mean, being outside of L.A., which I didn't think of as being a real city, having San Francisco and Oakland and Berkeley around, these felt like new, interesting, fascinating places. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I look back upon my 16 years in the, in the Bay with nothing but fondness. And every time I go back, it's always these sort of remnants and ghosts of my memories there. And they're and almost overwhelmingly are positive. That said, um, you know, having been back in L.A. now for nine years, uh, I love L.A. I love being back here. I cannot imagine moving back to the Bay Area. And partly it's because everything I read about the Bay sucks. Um, not that the writing sucks, but everything they have to say about the Bay it makes, it makes it sound like the worst place on the planet. So um, that isn't helping me wanting to go there. But I think um, I think you don't really realize how small San Francisco in particular is until you – live outside and then you go back and visit San Francisco mm-hmm. and then you realize, oh my God, this is such a small city, which mm-hmm. is part of its its beauty and its charm. But there is something to be said to be living in sort of like, you know, a so-called global city, the size and scope of LA, which just has such a tremendous diversity and complexity to it. Not that SF doesn't, but it's just the scale is different. The scale is completely different. I mean, I'm sure when are you as well as anyone here would know that. So it's absolutely stunning how how much you can go from loving Someplace so much, just like the when you talk about it, being able to sort of look across or see the bridge or see this structure and then to come down to this place, which is, I don't think it's the prettiest no, looking city, you know, at it's all. It's pretty gorgeous. Also, we should clarify, this podcast is for people who are not from California. You're totally allowed to listen. We do not need <laughs> to make this but no, you're, exclusionary. But the thing is, it's like, it's it's pretty here, but not in the same way that it's breathtaking in San Francisco. Driving back from Pasadena yesterday, I was looking over the San Gabriel Valley, and oh, I was... Nice. That looked pretty. Looked I was nice. like, this is gorgeous. Yeah. How much, though, I want to ask you about your book, Legions of Boom. Like, how much did that nostalgia for the 90s San Francisco era, how much did that spur you on to write that book very little because the book is mostly about hip-hop i'm sorry not about hip-hop the book is mostly about djs in the 1980s so which was which wasn't an era that i ever even lived in and so for me there was no nostalgia to it because it was never an experience that i ever i experienced myself i was really just asking my respondents about their experiences being in the bay area and being djs in the 1980s but in a lot of ways i was there was no personal attachment to that particular story because it was never my story i was down here in, in, in the 626, except back then it was the 818, uh, <laughs> you know, listening to K-Rock before I discovered hip-hop and, and just being like, well, this is kind of boring out here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you guys, that was a look into the heart and soul of the panelists of podcasts. We will be right back after this with some special jams. <laughs> Welcome back to Pop Rocket, Maximum Fun's premier healthcare podcast. <laughs> I'm your host, Guy Branham. With me in the studio are Margaret Wappler, Oliver Wang, Winter Mitchell, 
And you guys, usually on Pop Rocket, around this time, we ask our panel, what's your current jam? But since this is a very special bonus episode where we are bearing our souls, we've already shared our jams for this week, we're going to make it timeless. So tell me, what jam most reminds you of your childhood, Oliver Wang? As I mentioned earlier, I grew up in uh, in the Boston area in the 1970s. I was there until through fourth grade, and uh, this... I have to sort of qualify by this by saying because I listen to so much older music, I sometimes create these false memories for myself of, of music that I thought I listened to growing up, but maybe I really didn't. It's only because I've rediscovered those songs since. But one song that I do not listen to in the present that completely triggers a memory of growing up in New England it's actually the Rockford Files theme, I realized, Ooh. is a total trigger, which is the irony is, of course, the Rockford Files was set in Malibu. It was set in Los Angeles. <laughs> but I wasn't living in L.A. until I moved out to Southern California in 1980, which is the year the show ended. So, Can we hear it? <laughs> wow, that synth is talking to me. <laughs> I'm just like back in a time, like like a spaceship. Shout out to Mike Post, who was one of the, the co-writers of this song. Time Machine. And the 70s had really good TV theme music. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Know, WKRP I mean, in Cincinnati. Taxi. Mm-hmm. You know, Bob Jones. Those those sad sitcoms of the late 70s, early 80s. My 13-year-old niece has decided to watch all of MASH on Netflix oh, over the course no. of the summer. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm like, what kind of weird kid are you? Also, I love you. <laughs> Uh, winner, what's your what's your childhood jam? Um, I picked "Stepping Out" by Joe Jackson because mm. it reminded me of uh, sort of like the easy listening music that my mom and dad would listen to when they were getting ready to go out. So by the time I was the age I am now, or the age my parents were already like had been married almost ten years and had two kids, and they had a really big big jobs, but they were still healthy nightlife aficionados. Yeah. They were they would and it was like. The whole process, the getting dressed, the drinking some wine, driving, the whole thing. They shouldn't be drinking wine and driving. But they would get dressed up and, you know, go have a big night, and then they'd come home real late. So this song was always on the LP or on the tape deck, for sure, constantly. Oh, yes. Speaking of sense. Yeah. 80 cents, though, not 70 cents. Right. (laughs) My favorite part was always that uh, still gives me chills is when the piano comes in. Um, comes in a little bit. <laughs> was he considered white, blue-eyed soul, Joe Jackson? Was he considered soul soul? I don't I know. I don't think so. I think he's quite there. Yeah. What this was really that? reminds me of being a kid. What was that dancing show that came on back then? Solid Gold? Dance Fever. No, the one where they would... It was like a competitive dancing show, I remember. This makes me think Star of Search? That. No, it was before that... Um, Oh, Dance Fever? Dance Fever. Dance Fever with Danny Terrio? Danny Terrio. Oh, God. I mean, that song makes me think of that and watching television on independent television stations and all the chaos of our childhood. I only watched Dance Fever because it was a show on before Battlestar Galactica came on. So you had to suffer through that in order to get (laughs) to the Cylons. I remember that. Um, Margaret, what's your song? My song is by the Beach Boys, God Only Knows, because when you have seven people total in your family, it is really hard to find a band or song that you can all agree on. I bet. 
And so Beach Boys is one of the few bands that across the board everyone in my family loved and would always be playing at some holiday or another. So I, I picked one of the, the sweeter songs from the Beach Boys repertoire because I feel like my mom especially loved to like to sing along to this and like sit with her little glass of white wine and like listen to it. <laughs> Also, I think like churchy families, like as long as they're harmonizing, it's all good. Yeah. This song always gives me chills. I know, I love it. What did you think of it uh, at the end of Boogie Nights? I loved it. I thought it was used so effectively. Yeah, that was so sweet. And big love. Oh, yeah. Um, Are you tearing up? Yes, that song always. And when it became. Like a TV theme song for something, I should have just normalized my relationship. Right, and exactly. Not had it. That's why I'm thinking you said Big Love with such excitement. Yes, it was a good show. Um, mine is the Kink song "Come Dancing" because my I remember being outside and my sister talking about it and my mom explaining this is a band from the '60s who are now having a hit and like them having that interaction. But the song, the the, the song being about. A, a boy watching his older sister go through teenage life and that being so meaningful to him. Like, it's not him being active. It's him sort of like in that way that only an eight-year-old can, sort of like standing by and witnessing something, um, but having it be terribly, terribly meaningful. Like, the day they took down the palais, my sister stood and cried. The day they knocked down the palais, part of my childhood died. That is like... I almost started crying with uh, God Only Knows, but that just hits me like a brick every time Mm. because it makes me think about these people who aren't in my life the same way. And like when you're a kid surrounded by giants whose lives are so much more meaningful and the way the way that like my sister's teenage life, because I didn't understand it was kind of more imp- impactful than mine was. Oh, yeah. I know what you mean. Yes. Like you're processing everything through your older siblings first. Yeah. yeah. It's also not precious. No. And I feel like snobby Kinks fans are always like, this is just not really the Kinks. <laughs> I will also stand by Lola. I will oh, yeah. stand by Lola. <laughs> and I'm glad you played the Kinks. This is like one of the other bands that my family can get along on. <laughs> really? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> you, you guys, you've been listening to Pop Rock, a very special episode that I'm so glad that we did. And I hope you guys really enjoy uh, it's hosted by me, Guy Branham, with Winner Mitchell, Margaret Wappler, Oliver Wang. Our theme music is Party Booby Trap by Azumizo, who is giving us a soundtrack to newer great memories. Thanks to him for letting us use it. Get in touch with us on Twitter at Pop Rocket and join our Facebook group and tell everyone who your favorite Muppet is. We are a production of MaximumFun.org and our producer is the Mancunian, Colin Anderson. Let's how they did it when I was just a kid And when they said come dancing My sister always did
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.